RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. I go into the substack of Emeritus Professor Norman Fenton, and one of the first headings I see in the list of articles is how many deaths were caused by the COVID vaccine, an approximate analysis using minimal assumptions. And it's really interesting reading, and the more you look into Professor Fenton's work, the bigger it gets, the more expansive it gets. So I thought it would be a great idea to have Professor Norman Fenton join us on Reality Check Radio. He's in the UK, here in New Zealand. First of all, to get an idea of of, of what's happening in the UK and seeing if we can sort of extrapolate it back and get a stronger fix on what is happening here. So I want to welcome Professor Fenton to our program. Thanks for making some time for us. We appreciate it. Yeah, pleased to be on. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, so you're a British mathematician. Let's lay this out. Computer scientist. I said emeritus professor. And uh, you're a professor of risk information management in the School of Electronic Engineering and Computer Science at Queen Mary University of London. Only up till recently, right? Yeah, the end of December 2022, I, I, I retired and I'm now, yeah, emeritus uh, professor there. Okay. So, and I've read some of your personal um, positions on COVID. You know, we've all sort of know people that have been affected. There are stories that come right to our back doorstep. So how would you describe this last three years? This is the first question I ask everyone when we're talking about this, just to try and get an idea of, you know, encapsulate it into a description of some kind of madness, craziness. How would you describe it? Yeah, I mean, interestingly, from a personal perspective, um, before the COVID crisis, I, I'd like to say I had a fairly sort of prestigious career. I was sort of highly respected, but it it, it actually all really changed at, at the start of, uh, you know, in early 2022, because shortly after the pandemic began, I started, I and my colleagues started to show that that entire COVID narrative was being driven by flawed and easily manipulated statistics. And then I was suddenly called conspiracy theorist, a spreader of misinformation. And from that point on, all my research papers on the subject were essentially censored. I was treated like an academic pariah. I mean, I should clarify that before, um, you know, up until 2020, you know, I... I mean, I have got over, uh, I've got six published, I've got six books published, got over 300 peer reviewed papers. So, you know, this was, this was getting papers published and getting research grants was, uh, was never a problem. In fact, actually, much of the work I was doing prior uh, to COVID was in medical decision making, such as, you know, determining uh, whether a patient was at risk of particular diseases. In fact, I was leading a large interdisciplinary project at the time, which was focusing on chronic conditions like diabetes, multiple sclerosis, arthritis and heart failure. And I was working with specialist clinicians in all these areas. Right. So it was kind of inevitable that when the crisis you know, first arrived, that I would be drawn into looking at, you know, the covid data and the risks and, and that kind of thing. And and at first, you know, it, it was you know, it wasn't um, considered to be a prior because I was we, was we were doing things which weren't considered to be particularly controversial. So the first thing we did was we were looking at the infection fatality rate because people had this impression from those early months that, you know, if you've got, if you've got the virus, you're going to die. You know, there's 50, 60, 70 percent chance you're going to die. And that's what people actually believed, right? Because that was the kind of narrative that was being pushed but we looked at the early data you know that, that was publicly available there were some data sets you had the um uh you know the ship the uh the diamond princess data and there was other data sets and we said straight away you know that and we actually had papers public we, had, we were one of the first to have this published that the 
that the infection fatality rate, i.e. the probability that you would die if you got COVID, was way lower than anybody was 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 claiming. In fact, our figures at the time also, I mean, you had John Ioannidis at Stanford also publishing similar work. And with hindsight, actually, three years on, we even believe that those very low figures that we were saying then, the very low risk of dying, especially for anybody under the age of 70, we believed even then that the um, those those figures, I mean, yeah, they were very low then, but we actually believe now they're actually even even those figures are actually um, should be lower than what we were saying at the time. The, the risk was very low because now we know that, you know, we've now seen all, all the scam, how it was all working, how they were defining a COVID case. Yeah, so uh, how defining COVID death. So anybody who was testing positive on this, what turned out to be this fundamentally flawed PCR test was classified uh, as a COVID case. And most of the people who didn't have symptoms actually never went on to get symptoms. These were basically just false positives. And they were defining COVID hospitalizations, COVID deaths in terms of these COVID cases. So, yeah, I mean, these ridiculous definitions that were driving the whole thing based on this flawed PCR test was creating this ridiculous, you know, this ridiculously exaggerated view of how deadly the pandemic was. Do you think the PCR test was being used genuinely because there was faith in it? Or was that used as a way of cranking the handle of the narrative in a way that sounded convincing? I mean, it's a it's a difficult question. I, personally, again, now I think with hindsight, it was always used to drive the whatever narrative they wanted. So initially they Initially, only the only people who were really being tested, getting PCR tests, were those already seriously hospitalised with COVID in sort of February and March of 2020. They were testing a few frontline healthcare workers. So the effect of that, if you're only testing people who are very seriously ill in hospital with the virus, then you're going to what you're going to see is a lot of the people testing positive are going to end up dying. That that was why you got this this. Um, this idea at the time that you had this very, very high fatality rate because they weren't, they were only applying the PCR, they were only giving the PCR test to people already sort of critically ill with it. Because then what? So that they, at that point, it was used to create this incredible fear that we've got a lockdown. You know, this is the only way out of this. We first of all, we got a lockdown, right? And then later on, and this is where I first started um, to become the subject of, you know, people calling me a conspiracy theorist, it was in the early summer of 2020, because that's when they started the mass testing of asymptomatic people. And the reason for that, I, I now believe, is that um, as people were coming, that, that was when they started to come out of lockdown in the UK and, people, and kids started going back to school. And so basically everybody was getting tested. They were, and you, what you had was this mass testing of asymptomatics, which was leading to this incredible, um, uh, almost exponential increase in 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 what they called COVID cases, leading into the autumn and winter of 2020. Now, in fact, that what that so-called second wave, right, which was like they were showing in terms of COVID cases, was four or five times bigger than the original wave, was completely fabricated. Because if you look at the alternative data, like at the time, the NHS triage data for, for 999 ambulance calls for COVID triage, right? people who were actually 
ill, had genuine symptoms, respiratory conditions, right? It, there was nothing more than the normal sort of seasonal uh, respiratory condition blips. You know, you, there, was, there was no massive set. The second wave was all about, in my view, all about creating the uh, environment whereby they could then lock down, over, which they did over the, that, that, that Christmas, and say the only way out of this is the vaccine because the vaccines came in at the end of December 2020. And as you were sort of indicating, the PCR test was always very, very easy to manipulate to create the situation whereby uh, you've got this increase in cases when you wanted to create fear and when you wanted to sort of introduce, you know, the the idea of a big wave and the necessity for vaccines. And then you could then you could um, adjust it by by adjusting the cycle thresholds, by um, another trick, which I'll tell you about, which most people don't know about, where you could then get the, the numbers coming down if you want to show that, for example, the vaccine's working or the lockdowns are working. So that's how they did it. You know, so they... Um, um, so, so they, they used it to herd people in a particular direction because asymptomatic, yes. if you're not feeling like you've got anything but still think you might be passing it on or fearful that, yeah. um, that you know, something terrible could happen, goes against your instincts of feeling well, you can be easily pushed in a certain direction. Yeah, and this whole thing about the false positives, which is very, very poorly understood, is critical. People are unaware of just how big a problem the PCR false positive rate is. Because look, um, this is a little bit, let's try and get a little bit of simple maths over here, but I try and do it as easy as possible because this is so crucial and people generally don't understand it. Let's suppose the false positive rate is the, um, let me just, yeah, it's the, the false positive rate is the probability that an uninfected person will test positive. Now, that rate is actually pretty low. Let's suppose, for example, it's just 1%. So only 1% of, of uninfected people are going to test positive. But the question is, what is the probability that a person testing positive is uninfected? Now, most people assume that must be the same. That must be 1% or something similar. But it's not because it all depends on the underlying population infection rate. So suppose, suppose the infection rate is 1 in 1,000. Then if you test 10,000 people randomly, then you know that about 10 genuinely infected, they have the virus. So let's assume they all test positive. But out of that 10,000 people, you've now, you've taken away 10, but you've still got just under 10,000 who are uninfected because you've taken out the infected ones. Hmm. So 10 out of just under 10,000 people who are uninfected, if you've got a 1% false positive rate, then about 100 of those are going to wrongly test positive. So you've now got 110 people testing positive of whom only 10 are actually infected. So that means there's a greater than 90% chance that a person testing positive is uninfected. People, and so that it doesn't matter what, how that they've got a low false positive rate. The fact is, most people who test positive are going to be uninfected, especially asymptomatic people. And this, this is borne out in practice, incidentally, because in a in we looked at the study there was a there was a big study in Cambridge University of asymptomatics at a time when the false positive rate was really low it's actually less than half a percent but actually almost all of those who tested positive when they did confirmatory testing tended out turned out to be false positives they never had, they never wow. had symptoms they, they never went on to get to get symptoms and this isn't the only trick right so the other thing is that in the UK it was probably happening elsewhere 
for quite a long period when they were having these massive, you know, when they were reporting these massive case numbers every day, new cases, right? They were doing it, they were testing it on a single, they were testing, they were giving a positive PCR result on a single gene, whereas the World Health Organization and the kit manufacturers specified that you had to be positive on a minimum of two genes. And there were prolonged periods in 2020 and 2021 in the UK when around um, when up to some weeks when up to 50% of these PCR positives were single gene positives. And therefore, by definition, by definition, even the WHO definition, those should have been classed, those should not have been classified as COVID cases, but they were they were. So the whole thing, this is just incredible things that were, you know, and then you've got, remember, it's not just the cases because anybody who entered hospital who'd been PCR positive within two weeks before was classified as a COVID hospital admission, irrespective of what they were, whether they went in for, you know, for a broken leg, for lung cancer treatment, heart treatment, doesn't matter. They were classified as COVID cases. They were put in COVID wards as well. I was personally. I went into hospital for a procedure last year, tested positive on the night, had no symptoms, never had any symptoms, but was counted as a COVID case. Exactly. And a COVID hospitalization. Of course, with yeah. deaths, it's the same. So, you know, you get someone, I mean, my, my example I always give is that you get someone who's uh, no symptoms, whatsoever, has to, he has to uh, get tested to go to work, right? Test positive, right? So he's officially a PCR, he's officially a, a COVID case. Then, you know, 13 days later, he gets injured in a car crash, right? He's yeah, rushed man. to hospital with a COVID <laughs> yeah. hospitalization. And then two weeks after that, he dies of his injuries. It's classified as a COVID death because he died within 28 days of a positive PCR test. And that's the, it goes into the official records. Well, right? We had someone not, shot yeah. on a driveway in a gang shooting who tested positive and was listed, made the media as a yeah. COVID death when it was so damn obvious that it was the, the blast that, that killed him. The question is, was that an engineered use of that test and the data that came from it? Or have you got smart people sitting around with the wrong idea? It's the, 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 the test, look, there was, I mean, I don't want to go into details of how that, that test was suddenly, it came out of nowhere, you know, you know based on this Chinese sequences, and then suddenly the, a paper that was never properly reviewed, less than 24 hours, you know, that was the test and that was adopted worldwide. And, and, some, and, and there were, you know, all of these, all of these PCR kits, you know, millions of them were, were distributed worldwide. I mean, the, the whole thing, really, in hindsight, it, there's something. It was, it was all, it was, it, you know, that whole thing with the PCR test was clearly planned, and this was clearly a way to drive the narrative. It was always a way to drive the narrative in any way you want. It was never accurate. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was that was the thing which which drove everything. As a numbers person yourself, when you saw the way the numbers were looking to you, what sort of feeling did you get? Well, as I said, straight from the start, we knew that the uh, the infection fatality rate was being exaggerated. You were also getting the exaggerated deaths, incidentally, in that first wave from uh, uh, not the people were dying. They might have been PCR positive, right? But they weren't dying because of COVID. I mean, even the ones who were dying, who had had the virus, right? What they were actually, many, a lot of people were actually dying from the secondary bacterial pneumonia they 
uh, were uh, they got as a result of having the virus. And then they changed the rules for how you deal with think how you actually deal with that. They were specifically changed the pandemic rule. The pandemic rules changed the way they treated these people. So people who would otherwise have been given the, the standard combination of antibiotics for that, you know, for bacterial pneumonia, weren't given them. They were put on ventilators. They were given exactly the wrong type of treatment. Well, the ventilators so many of those the, early- there was a huge call for ventilators were huge in the initial yeah. part of it. Trump went out and repurposed GM. They built I don't know, a million ventilators. Everyone was talking about ventilators. And it was the wrong, you know, and they were intubating ventilators. And in many cases, the doctors and nurses were, were, were putting them on ventilators simply to protect themselves from, they didn't want the, you know, they were so worried about the, getting COVID from the patient. They were putting this on. So they were giving them inappropriate treatment. They weren't giving them, of course, they, all of the early uh, treatment protocols, which have been coming out of America and were proven to be very effective, you know, those combinations of hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, zinc, that none of those were allowed anywhere in, in, in the UK and Europe. And of course, they stopped them in the States as, as well. And I guess in New Zealand, Australia, they were also banned. Yes. But, um, but they, so they weren't getting any early treatment. You know, they were told just as if they, if you if you did have symptoms, you were told to stay at home, maybe just take a, a paracetamol. Only when they were really ill, then when they go to hospital, at which point, again, even if when they were getting the bacterial pneumonia, they weren't given the antibiotics. They were just put on these ventilators, and an enormous proportion of people who were put on ventilators were um of course died it was it was absolutely an appalling thing and in the uk we had this um uh, just trying to get the details this up uh, this this death this this sort of end of new end of life protocol was introduced by the um nice or the or the sort of the the medicine agency i'm trying to get the details of what the it was the ig 53 or something but basically this specifically um you know precluded it's, it stopped all the normal treatment you would give for people with this type of respiratory uh, virus and this and these types of pneumonias and it, it and although they've tried to that was introduced in in uh, march 2020 and they've tried to like they tried to um get rid of that from the internet you know because it, it, they realized that soon after that uh i think in the summer maybe they they sort of withdrew it from the that document from the internet but it's but we, we found it and you can see that this was this was it was appalling it was it was you know, it was. It's almost as if they wanted to get rid of all of. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, what, what possible conclusion could anyone draw except um, a complete misunderstanding of <laughs> of the professional business they're in, or a willful effort to lessen the chances of survival? It was. Crazy. I think it was. I think it's a combination. You know, it's a combination of of idiotic planning, fear, and um, but also a little bit of, of, of malevolence, you know. There, I mean, I'm not, I'm not one of these who goes for the sort of the, the, the whole sort of depopulation. Yeah, uh, but it doesn't narrative. make any sense, uh, right? It when you, when you're dealing sense. with vulnerable people in weakened states, uh, the natural instinct is to do the right thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But they were they were clear that protocol. I, was, I can't. It was IG. I can't. I'm trying. I was trying. Well, I think IG we're kind of familiar with what you're talking about in the mix of but, drugs. But that pro, that protocol was quite appalling. I mean, I, I did have. I did have some. I had some. My, yes, I haven't got my notes here about where the um, what the because I was actually going to read off some some of the actual statements from it. But yeah, it's 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 quite appalling. Um, yeah, it was a nice guideline NG one six three, essentially end of life protocol, and yeah. they were. 
they were they were essentially you read that through you know someone who was suffering you know badly from covid they were essentially if they were over 65 there was essentially they were essentially saying you know don't do too much there's not you know goodbye uh, see you later <laughs> yeah basically yeah the reason i asked you about how you felt when you saw the numbers uh, i wonder are you naturally suspicious with the statistics yeah. before you've analyzed them or or, or were you sort of like, okay, I'll look at these, benefit of the doubt, oh, my God. I mean, how'd it go? Yeah, I mean, we, well, the first time, I mean, it, as I say, it was the, those, the, the case numbers they were giving, right? So they were giving, they were showing in the summer and autumn of 2020 these ridiculously um, daily increasing uh, case numbers. And, of course, we simply looked at the number, knowing that there was an issue with false positives, we simply looked at the, said, well, hang on a sec, if you're going to get these daily case numbers, you need to look at how, how many people you're testing. And of course, what you saw is that the, it was the testing numbers going up astronomically at the same time as the case numbers going up. And when you simply divided the number of cases by the number of people testing, and then so you're looking at the sort of positivity rate, you see something which wasn't going up. It wasn't, there wasn't any massive second wave. Just by, and that act of dividing, it was that, that act of dividing two numbers was considered to be, you know, this sort of, that was the revolutionary act which led to me being called a conspiracy theorist a spread of misinformation so that was the point where the numbers were clearly it was a that was a fraud just giving the case numbers without taking account of the numbers being tested right and taking no account of this false positive problem and, and i mean again with incidentally with not just with hindsight we were at the time you know there was sort of freedom of information requests. And you're already seeing that most of the people who were being classified as COVID deaths, right, had other other, other comorbidities. I mean, did you, did you know that in the first two years, I mean, there is an FOI, a well-known FOI request, which looked at the first two years of deaths in the UK, COVID deaths. So that, that was the period. So 2020, 2021, most of all the COVID deaths were in those two years. There was 137,000 in, I think, England and Wales. And an FOI request asked for how many of those were um, uh, deaths without existing comorbidities, right? And how many of them actually had a post-mortem to determine whether, you know, whether there was this, whether it was really caused by the by the COVID uh, virus. The answer was not a single post-mortem was done. There was no record of any post-mortem on any of those, right? And of the 137,000, less than 6,000 were people dying without an existing comorbidity. And, the, and in the under, so it was less than, that was about 4.5%. And in the under 20s, there was only three deaths in the whole of, in the, whole of the pandemic of, of, of youngsters without an existing comorbidity. So this was, this always had, was zero risk, which was saying, we were, we, we, we were saying early on, this was of zero risk to young people. And yet, they were pushing the vaccine. Now, when it comes to, you were asking about when, when we're suspicious, the m- biggest suspicions and the most kind of like in-depth analysis we've done relates to the data associated with the, the vaccine safety and efficacy, because that's where all of the big statistical frauds have really come in. Right. Because remember, um, we got it here. I'm sure you got it there. Safe yeah. and effective. Yeah. Uh, first of all, you won't catch it if you take it then it went down to well you won't get that sick and you won't get into hospital and it sort of kind of cascaded down with uh with smaller promises let's say as it went so with what you knew going into that part of it did you have an inkling that you're going to see some pretty tragic statistics 
Yeah. So once the vaccine rollout started and was going through. Yeah. So th- th- it's both a personal and a sort of professional uh, opinion. I was already getting I, because I was already tuned into the sort of the uh, let's say the uh, the circle of people who were questioning the official narrative about how deadly the virus was and the second wave. I was also tuned in with people who were very concerned about the mRNA uh, vaccines. And uh, the and the, that was before they were before they were rolled out. Okay, so we were going to we were, we were certainly going to take a look at any spikes in deaths in in all cause mortality in sort of early January of two thousand twenty one. But from a personal perspective, do you know on the, one of the early one of the first they were giving them to in the UK at the end of December, beginning of January, they were giving them to sort of the elderly and those considered to be most at risk. And a friend's father who was well, he was elderly, right? But he was in perfectly good health. You know, he was he was old. Um, he had the vaccine. He was dead within 24 hours, right? That was on January wow. the 2nd. So I already knew. And I already knew that there was going to be an issue here because that the family refused to consider even the possibility that, that had anything to do with the vaccine. So right. this would never have been reported. This would never... They were fur- any concept of that, and and that's something that carried on with other people I knew who, who for example, died, who were in, had had cancer but were in remission, and then took the took a, a boost and then died sort of two weeks later of the cancer coming back. So, so the thing is that I already knew that the families of these people who were dying very shortly after the the, the uh, vaccine, we're never going to admit, we're never going to say this had anything to do with the vaccine. Right? Do you think they ever considered it in their own minds and were... I don't know. It's confident to, uh, Yeah, okay. I, yeah, I, know, I know the term you're about to use. <laughs> yeah, maybe they... And and I think once you, you feel a responsibility, you're, you're, you're going to be in denial. And I think that's, that, that's part of it. But also because they were all bought into the safe and effective narratives. They didn't think... They just were saying, well, no, that was his day. He was destined to die then. The vaccine had nothing to do with it. You know, he was he had a good life, good good long life. That's it, you know. That's the way a lot of people felt. But we were, we were onto this, right? And we looked at the early office. Now, this is interesting. So people looked to the... UK's Office for National Statistics mortality by vaccination status data, because actually they're one of the only organisations in the world who were producing the mortality data by vaccination status. So in theory, you could look at it and they were claiming even early on that this data was supporting the safe and effective narrative. Right. So we thought, hang on a sec, we're going to look at this data. Well, first of all, the first thing you notice is that there's an all cause mortality spike in each different age group occurring in early 2021, at exactly the same time when the COVID vaccine rollout peaks. So what we said, what we did was we looked at the non-COVID mortality. So that what's, so because they classified it by vaccination status, death by vaccination status, and also by COVID and non-COVID deaths. So, we looked at the spikes in non-COVID mortality because that's what was happening. There were spikes in non-COVID mortality in each age group at the same time when the vaccine rollout was peaking. Now, you got to think about this. Why, why on earth? Why on earth would there be? Why would people who don't take the vaccine suddenly start dying at a higher rate at the same time when the vaccine rollout? Is, is 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 going on it just it doesn't make any sense whatsoever so um you've either got 
what's happening is you've and, and what's more so so the so the non-COVID mortality rate of the unvaccinated was suddenly much higher than the historical averages, whereas the non-COVID mortality of the vaccinated was much lower than the historical averages, right? So what you've got is apparently this this bizarre situation where this the, the vaccine is killing killing people who don't take it of things other than COVID, and it's miraculously saving people who take it from 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 non-COVID. Yeah deaths right now of course of course this is nonsense right and of course it can only mean two things right um it means well the, the most obvious one is a misclassification they're classifying people who are dying shortly after vaccination as um as an unvaccinated covid death right now we know we know that for the efficacy studies anybody who gets covid in the uk within three the first three weeks of the vaccination is classified as unvaccinated that's yep. the official they classify it, right? Now, the ONS claim that for the mortality, no, they're saying for those when they're looking at safety as opposed to efficacy, they say no, they were classifying, but we know they weren't, right? We, we know that they didn't have control over the way the data was coming in for that. And we know that a lot of the vaccinated deaths were actually missing from their data. We know there was massive bias in their data. So all of these things led us, you know, to, to really dig deep into this, into this data and we exposed these flaws and biases there were so many it wasn't it wasn't just the misclassification problem they were massively underestimating the proportion of unvaccinated which was again inflating the mortality rate for the unvaccinated while deflating the mortality rate for the vaccinated and it was similarly inflating the efficacy for the um the vaccination program this whole thing about this delay of three weeks before you classify someone as vaccinated. Well, that's a meaningless um, classification, isn't it? I mean, from the second you've had it, you are, let's say. Exactly. And the the whole point is that a lot, we know that a lot of COVID, we know that people disproportionately get COVID or test PCR positive, I should say, within the first two weeks of a COVID vaccination. And to count all those people as unvaccinated COVID cases leads to the inevitable it, it's a statistical illusion whereby you can guarantee you get this 95% efficacy. If you did that, the same thing to a, to a, to a placebo vaccine at a time when there's some virus out there, you're also guaranteed 95% efficacy. That's a statistical illusion. We've shown that. that did a, we did a simulation where we did it assuming a placebo vax with their definition of what constitutes a, a case over like a three or four month period using the, the a similar kind of vaccine rollout where you're rolling it out fairly fast over an entire population cohort. And you end up with exactly the type of vax efficacy they were claiming, which was starting at very high, 94, 95%, then gradually going down until after three or four months, it's down to like 10, 20% maximum. And hey, presto, you need the booster. Yes, right. here comes oh, the booster. It's the, perfect, it's the perfect pharma model. And this was all, you can simulate that for a complete placebo vaccine. I'm speaking with Emeritus Professor Norman Fenton, British mathematician and computer scientist, and using statistics in that way offers or creates plausible deniability potential yeah. too, because you can point to stem. Well, you know, we told you it'd be 95%. Here it is right here. And people aren't going to do a deep dive like you do. And they'll accept that. And even if it's shown up to be wrong later, they'll say, I guess, well, that's what the stats showed yeah, at the time. And that's the only thing we could go on at the time. And it was yeah, but the science thing is- moving at the speed of light and all of that. 
But the thing is, that 95%, which they were quoting for all of that, the, the facts of the Pfizer randomized control trial, where they shouldn't have been able to do these tricks, right? Because the, these tricks can only be done, it, that, that we said in sort of the observational studies, like where it's rolled out to the population. They shouldn't have been able to do it in the randomized control trial. But even there, they, there was a whole load of tricks whereby they would, you know, it was supposed to be, they would, it was unblinded. They actually knew who were the vaccinated and who got the placebo. And a lot of the people who got PCR positive who were in the um, vaccine group, they didn't test them, whereas they, te- sorry, who had symptoms in the in the vaccine group. They didn't test them, whereas they were testing all those in the placebo group. So all kinds of tricks like that. I mean, that Pfizer trial was a real, was an unbelievable, um, uh, ridiculous, you know, f- flawed and, and uh, f- almost fraudulent sort of um, trial. But that 95% figure, was was the one which was used to sort of get the emergency use author, uh, emergency use author, use authorization for the vaccines. But interesting enough, and this is the critical thing about what you're saying about could you expose, could you actually expose these problems? You know, were they, you know, what were they doing? And, and in all of the observational, the big observational trials that followed in in the spring of 2020, there were two big trials in Israel. So they rolled it out very quickly to the whole population there. They were also claiming there were two papers, one in the Lancet, one in the New England Journal of Medicine, two different studies of the same, essentially the same cohort, also claiming that the that in practice, so not in the randomized controlled trial, that we had this 95% efficacy for the Pfizer vaccine. Now, when the, we knew, we looked at those papers, those papers were so bad, right? We looked in particular at the Lancet one. It came out at the beginning of May 2021. And it had all of these flaws in it. It had so many flaws. I mean, they were testing the people who were who didn't get, the who weren't vaccinated, they were testing them at a rate of six times more than those who were vaccinated. So we've got all these PCR positives, right? And Hungry this, for a result. <laughs> all of the shenanigans where they were moving the, the vaccinated cases into the unvaccinated group. You had all of that going on. And it was at a time anyway when the when the COVID infection rate was coming down. So that would automatically give you an, an appearance of, in, of efficacy of a vaccine. All of those things were happening. We pointed this out in a 250-word response to the Lancet, right? And we know others did similar letters. They 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 didn't publish a letter. They first of all said, well, we're going to send your letter to the authors. Now, the authors of that study Eight of the 15 declared that they had stocks, uh, shares in Pfizer. Right. right. That should have been a, you know, that, that should have been a concern anyway. Right. But the lead, the lead author was a, it was a woman called Sharon Auri Price, didn't declare a conflict of interest, even though she was the Israel Ministry of Health's appointed liaison person in charge of the collaboration between the Israel Ministry of Health, like the government of Israel and Pfizer. And yet she didn't declare she didn't declare that conflict of interest. Now, anyway, we we put this response in. They said, "Oh well, we'll send it to the authors for, to see before we publish it." Your reply. We didn't we didn't hear anything for months. They we we remind them nothing. On January the eighth, two thousand and twenty three. That is what 18, 17, 18 months later. Yep. We got an email from the editor um, from the Lancet, saying, ah, we're, we've just realised we never responded to this, we're, we're, we're sorry, um, but we did we did contact the authors, and because they never replied, we've decided not to publish your letter. Ah, uh, okay. Do you buy that? Now, the next, I, I put that, I put that email, their email on Twitter, 
and it got a million impressions within tw- within 12 hours. Okay. And the next day or the day after, unsolicited, I got another email from The Lancet saying, oh, um, we've reconsidered um, because of the very poor treatment you know that, that you've experienced w- with us. We are we will publish your letter. We are now have to publish your letter or um, a, a, an update to it. Right. So we sent an update the next day, and within two hours of us sending an updated letter, they rejected it again. Okay, I was waiting for <laughs> you to say, and they published it, and and that was that. No. They rejected it again. And I, at that point, I asked for, I did a freedom of information access request to Elsevier, who own the Lancet journal. And I got back, I asked for all of the correspondence between the uh, editors over this uh, letter and this this um, fiasco after I'd put it on Twitter and stuff like that. And I got back a nine page PDF mostly redacted but enough of it was unredacted to see that they decided to reject my letter because of who i was they said oh this guy is spreading vaccine misinformation on twitter and all this stuff so they there was no substance to the um no scientific reason for them to reject the letter it was simply because they didn't like who i was that's amazing that's and that is the that is the level of censorship you get and instantly all of my papers since i started challenging the narrative we've had done all these detailed analysis for example exposing the flaws in the ons data none of that stuff was published that was always getting rejected with you know i mean at the start we were getting papers reviewed and getting favorable reviews but then the editors would point other reviewers to reject it right and then they then the editors were simply saying that oh no they would reject it on the basis they didn't think it was sufficiently interesting or novel then they're rejecting it without review or even editorial review and then we couldn't even get our papers accepted on the preprint servers the whole so, thing is so a- to, to the average lay person like myself that just tells me that everyone was in on it pretty well they're yeah, all massive, in yeah all, all in on it the whole this whole the academic elites they're all part of it yeah the, the whole thing was, it's was, quite was, shattering to realize that isn't yeah. it yeah don't you think i mean it's it's absolutely it's absolutely appalling i mean i've no lost all trust in the sort of the scientific method in the um the whole kind of like academia is is just so completely and utterly kind of like um destroyed in my view now yeah for many people yeah. one thing again as a lay person looking at graphs and only you know knowing sort of what i learned at school I can't get over the, um, the the spikes on the graphs that show mm. deaths going up perfectly timed with rollouts of vaccines and more specifically the age groups. Yep. I don't know how you can get beyond that. That's there cannot be a coincidence, surely. You know, you know there you know there are answers to this because we we've held discuss. I mean, to be fair, we we've had. You know, significant discussions with the people at ONS. We know the people who produce these reports. Um, we we told them to their face what's wrong with it, and they've come, they've always come back with. They first of all came back with this so-called healthy vaccine effect. They was they, they were saying, well, first it was the unhealthy unvaccinated effect. They were saying, ah, oh, the reason for those, the reason for those spikes in uh, in those deaths at the time when the vaccine was rolled out and the unvaccinated was that people who were close to death. They said they claimed were not given the vaccine. So they were dying at the time when the vaccine. That is complete nonsense. It's the op in the UK, we know it was the opposite happened. People who were who were very critically ill, people, even people close to death in care homes, they were vaccinated first. They were given priority. 
And so that was nonsense. And then they said, ah, it's the healthy vaccine effect, right? The reason why you've got the unvaccinated um, dying of non-COVID uh, much higher than the historical non-COVID mortality rate is, and, and the, those who are vaccinated dying at a much lower rate than the of non-COVID than the historical rates because the it's because people who take the vaccine are particularly healthy people, right? And therefore they've got a better chance okay. of dying. That's that. There might be a if even if there's a little bit of that because there is a little we think there may be a little bit of that. Right. But even if there is, they never adjusted for it in their efficacy and safety evaluations, because if you if there is a bias like that, you have to adjust for it. They never did. That's why all of their safety and efficacy uh, claims are basically fraudulent. And then it got to, well, people were in lockdown. They didn't get their medical appointments and they didn't get their um, consultations and cancers that were, you know, in early stages had developed and heart problems, all that. You know, you could almost write the script as they started doing I think there it. Was, I think that that did contribute. That has contributed to excess death. But they leaned on it a lot. They leaned on it a lot. And now they're leaned on the, they're trying to give the long COVID uh, excuse, which is absolute, complete nonsense. What, what, what do you make of long COVID? Because that's talked about a lot here. I know people who complain that they have it or are explaining how they feel um, right. you know, due to that. I mean, I don't well, know. Yeah. Is, is there anything in long COVID? Well, I'll tell you about my views on that. First of all, the first thing I, I've done is I, I've approached all the people who are supposedly doing research in long COVID, right, and say, can you show me the data of the long COVID cases classified by vaccination status? Never get it. You never get it. Yeah. Right? Now, to be fair, and, and of course there have been studies, um, not taking account of vaccination status, but, but that have actually shown that um, people are just likely to have, have, um, uh, give symptoms of long COVID, whether or not they had serious cases of COVID or not. So there's there's that. But I, I don't I don't I'm not interested. In that. I'm simply interested in the data of long COVID on vaccinated versus unvaccinated. Every person I know who says they have long COVID was vaccinated. Yeah, same. And never, and never really spoke about long COVID until after the vaccination. That because that's, that's used as a way to explain what could be adverse reactions and effects, right? I mean, it's, it's a very yeah. convenient way of parking yeah. that off. Yeah, of course. Use the same symptoms, exactly. All of the same uh, adverse events. Of the, well, of course, it's, it's the spike protein, so you're going to get... You know, it's going to have similar. It's going to have similar types of adverse events. You know, of adverse effects on, you know, whether it be on the heart or neurological or whatever. These, uh, you know, this this is this is what it does. So, how is um, um, all-cause mortality or whatever the uh, excess deaths, whatever the term is, it's running at ten percent. We think here at the moment, though our director general of public health now retired and since picked up a knighthood is saying that, uh, and I'm sure you've got a view on the way the stats have been used there because it may have been similar to where you are. But uh, he claims that we actually had negative excess deaths in the last three years, though ambulances are crazy, hospitals are full, and people know people who've had problems yeah. more than just, you know, the the one in a million. So, yeah. so how could you say that? Um, and use statistics that seem, I'm talking about those spikes on graphs being so obvious, 
turning it around 180 degrees and claiming that actually we've done everyone a favor. Look, we're, we, we've won. We've, we've kept deaths down. We're heroes. Give me a knighthood. It's, it's very easy. And again, it's all a statistical scam. It's how you measure excess deaths. So in a, in a situation like an unusual situation like this, where you've got a pan, the pandemic of 2020, well, you got it a bit later, uh, and then the uh, then the vaccine, the lockdowns and the vaccine program. So you've got all these un, incredibly unusual um, circumstances, which are going to lead to increase normal, you know, a, a normal an increase in deaths. If you're going to measure excess deaths, you have to comp- you have to use the period before that, the stable period. So you normally use the previous five years except in circumstances like this, where you'd use the previous five stable years and then you'd adjust it for population change and stuff like that. If you use the stable five years of the 2015 to 2019, which you should do, then I can tell you, because I've looked at the New Zealand data, that that claim about uh, excess deaths, you know, that, that you've got negative excess deaths is nonsense. In fact, you've got excess deaths, significant excess deaths in some pip, some months it was over 30%, right? You've got that ever since the introduction of the vaccine in 2021, right? You have got excess deaths consistently since then, right? But if you do the trick of including 2000, I mean, I, I think nobody includes 2020, because that was a pandemic year, right? But what they're now doing, and they're doing this in the UK, they're suddenly bringing in 2021 and 2022 into the uh, into the baseline for the excess death calculations. Well, hang on, so if you do that, you're not going to have any excess deaths in 2023. Because hmm. you've really got, you know, this... I mean, so it's, it's, again, it's just a statistical trick. It all depends on what years you take. There are also lots of... It's not just a question of that. There's there's there's, there's lots of other sort of statistical intricacies in in how you adjust for again for changes in population. There's lots of things which where if you own the data and you don't give full data access to people who want to investigate it, you can't even replicate the figures that they're given. I mean, we had this problem. You know, we have this problem with the safety figures they give and the efficacy figures, and also this excess deaths. So unless you've got access to the full data set that they're using very difficult to replicate but in simple terms the simplest trick is that one of just it's which years you choose for your baseline for the excess deaths and that claim by you know the, the your, your person there in new zealand is simply based on that 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 trick of choosing those particular years and yet it's it's kind of in your face because i have here the mortality stats um from 2020 to 2023 in weeks from our uh, Ministry of Health, and there's not a week in all of those weeks that there isn't excess deaths, and you know some are running at over thirty percent some weeks. You know, yeah, because this is the uh, whole thing. Because <laughs> but, but there it is, the they're one. saying one thing, their their table showing another. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, because the excess because they're, they're <laughs> well, yeah, it's all because of this trick. Because if you yeah. start off with the excess deaths from the sort of the the, the low years, but then as you go on, you're adding, you're including those excess deaths from the years where there were excess deaths. So it's sort of they overall you can claim there weren't excess deaths. Oh dear. Okay, so um, from a statistical viewpoint, and I don't know if you do extrapolation or you, you try and sort of forecast ahead. Uh, and obviously, we're becoming a, a little wiser to the longer term effects, albeit a short long term of this thing. 
How big could this excess death rate get, do you think? Is there any way um, of knowing or, 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 or there, again, estimating? I, I, we've, I mean, I think if the ex, we, we, on the basis you were mentioning the uh, the Substack article I did, where I was trying to estimate how many deaths, how many of the excess deaths in the UK in the last two years were, were down to the vaccine. Um, from that, you can get some you can get some idea of how many um, deaths are going to be either directly or indirectly caused by the vaccine. Now, directly, I think there's not going to be a lot more because all of these people you're know, dying shortly after a boost or whatever. Well, people aren't people aren't stupid anymore. People aren't taking the boosters, right? right. So there's been a big Unless, drop in that where you are. So I think there will be there will you'll you'll stop seeing these. So, like as I say, those spikes in deaths that you were seeing, which create a lot of excess deaths shortly after the vaccines and the boosters, they'll go. I think they'll go away as people stop taking the vaccines, right? So you're left with the impact of the longer term impacts, the indirect deaths, yeah. right? Those people who, um, because of the vaccine, because of the vaccine, as we know, it's it's causing this sort of turbo cancers and stuff like that, the heart conditions. Which are not gonna may not need lead, lead till death until many years later. Any estimate for those, then I think has to be based on the uh data we have for serious adverse events per um dose of the vaccine. And for that, we're talking about now, we think that that figure there was a study based on the Pfizer's Pfizer's own. Pfizer Moderna's own randomized controlled trials. It was a study by um, Freeman and Doshi, which has got a lot of publicity, and people have, of course, tried to attack that. It's one of the few papers that actually did get published, which did expose the safety problems of, of, of the vaccines. And in that, they were showing a one in eight, one in eight hundred doses was leading to a serious adverse event. So that's the kind of that's the kind of the figure that that I think it might be even a bit a little bit more than that. So those are the ones which lead to a serious adverse event. And of those, how many of those will lead to an early death? That's the, that's the unknown. Um, I think in, in our estimate, again, based on speaking with clinicians, we were, we were making an estimate, of, you know, it could be uh, sort of five to 10% of those could lead to an early death. Right. That's still um, a lot of know, people. I mean, it's over, over the number of people took it. That, that is a lot of people. It's not, it's not a mass depopulation. No. Um, thing but it's but it's you know it it's it's hundreds of thousands of people yeah i mean in the uk it will eventually you know in the uk it's certainly tens of thousands in america hundreds of thousands in new zealand it will be thousands yeah so you think it'd be it'd be safe to say that we even though we're different countries different scale but basically the same operation was rolled out the kind of yeah, a lot of thing happened there are differences in the vaccines. Different countries have different vaccines, and also oh, okay. different. Yeah. Not an interesting one. Like some countries, um, there was a, there was this interesting comparison between um, Denmark and Norway about the use of aspiration, right? Which before the COVID vaccines came in was a, was a thing. Every you always, if you were given an intramuscular injection, you're supposed to do this thing called aspiration, where you put in the needle, mm. you, you just put it inside, and if there's any lid put it in slightly and if there's any blood right john you don't then inject no because you're in a vein, vein. or you're you're, you're, in you, a you're, hit, you're wrongly yeah. hit going into exactly into a vein and it's the blood supply right so with with covid 
with the COVID vaccines, in the UK and I think in most places in the world, they stopped doing aspiration because they, they stopped they here. They would do it because a lot of untrained, a lot of newly trained people, right? In they some were doing cases, them in car parks, and there, some people with two hours of training, two hours online training, became vaccinators, right? And and we know, we know, there's, there's, it's known that if you don't um, uh, do the aspiration, there's something like a one in a hundred, or maybe even higher poss- probability that you'll wrongly go straight into the, you know, into the, you'll go straight into into the blood supply, and then it will very quickly the, the spike protein will very quickly get to all other parts of the body. So whether or not you aspirate, and ha- and like, so for example, there was this big comparison between Norway and um, Denmark, one of whom aspirated, one didn't. And there were major differences. So even though they're, they're similar types of demographics, there were major differences in the early reported uh, number of myocarditis and pericarditis cases. Yeah. So I think aspiration does have a it, it does have an impact. So again, countries which were more which were vaccinated more carefully than others will have lower rates. And then you've got different types of um, uh, I say the very different types of vaccine. Even look that the even the way that the vaccines. Uh, you know, they were delivered it to, to doctor surgeries and, and, and they had to make them up. They had to dilute them. So the way you dilute them and also what type of batch you had, some batches were far more deadly than other batches. We know this. So all of these are factors. So you could get some countries relatively untouched, whereas others have it, have it much worse, all depending on these sorts of factors. Is this the biggest scam ever pulled, do you think? I don't, well, it's, a, it's an interesting one. Because of this, I've taken a keen interest. I always was a bit sceptical about that. I was always sceptical about the climate crisis being a a scam because I I always felt, I said very early on publicly, that I thought that the COVID lockdowns were always going to be a precursor to climate lockdowns, which is proven to be the case. And I think that the... The same, all the same people involved, all the same tactics, all the same scare tactics, all the same flawed models, statistical models are being, were used in the to create this climate crisis as the COVID crisis. So I'd say I'd put them on a par. And in terms of the long term impact, sadly, I think the climate crisis is going to be a bigger, it will be a bigger scam and have much more deadly long-term implications because the net zero 2050 agenda, which most countries have now adopted, is is going to be a total catastrophe if they really if they really do actually follow up on that, which they seem to be doing. They seem I can give doing. you an example of that down here. We had a uh, cyclone here about three months ago, did a lot of damage to a particular part of the North Island of the country, wiped out... Um, uh, a lot of farms, a lot of orchards it caused a huge amount of damage. And that was painted as uh, a consequence of climate change, more severe weather, and yeah. they were ringing the alarm bells. And a journalist here did some investigative work, good old-fashioned journalism, and looked back on all the early newspapers in New Zealand, which stretched back to the um, you know, 1840s, 1850s there, and discovered that there have been huge weather events Uh, throughout Mm -hmm. that time, causing even more. Okay, the population wasn't the same size and it wasn't as developed, but in terms of barometric pressure, wind speed, and all those sorts of measures were very bad. Um, He went and looked at the analysis that was behind the comment about we're getting more severe weather now because Mm -hmm. of, uh, of climate change and found that their data only went back to 1978. Yeah, yep. I mean, I was—I'd I'd almost left school in 1978. It wasn't that long ago, 
And you of know course, that, that worldwide sent data. them into a huge scramble to explain it. But, you know, there's an example of it. You know, there's worldwide data that um, uh, you can look at dating back from the, I think, from the early 1800s about number of deaths due to climate, you know, number of deaths due to climate, some sort of climate emergency or climate catastrophes, right? And it's been absolutely come, it was, it was, it's been coming down absolutely yeah. steadily ever since. Yeah. And it's continuing to come down. Far fewer people are dying of, 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 of climate emergencies than ever before. Yet it's that use of data to, you know, to confirm in the public's minds anyway, a narrative that they're hearing. And yeah. and not everyone is, well, most people aren't equipped unless someone does the digging, and that's probably what has to happen, to even think very deeply about that at all and just take it on board. These people are scientists. It's an official institution. They've got things that look like balloons that go up and do the weather. Of course, they'd be right. And that's where it's left. Exactly, because the because the people who control the narrative on climate and uh, and COVID, they they have control of the media, they have control of academia, they have control of the, of the legal um, services. They've got control of everything. They, 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 therefore, they completely can dictate and brainwash everybody into these into thinking these ways. Oh dear, but scary that. Look, just to to wind up, it's been a really interesting chat with you. How have you personally got through this? Because I know you you know you're de- dealing with stuff at home. Also, you, your yeah. reputation has has been under attack, I guess, and uh, you've been <laughs> you, you're a conspiracy theorist, though that means yeah. nothing anymore in my book. How have you sort of dealt with all of that? All that all that incoming. Look, it, it's been it's been really difficult. It's been depressing at time, but it has it has. Um, at the, at the same time, in the last three years, I've met through the sort of the counter narrative movement, if you like, so many great people who I would never have ever have known if not for this. And these are people whose friendship I now value far more than many of the uh, colleagues and you know, so-called colleagues and, uh, and friends who, who who basically reject, you know, kind of like uh, snub me, treated me as a pariah so um yeah so it has its despite all of the bad things you know it's it's also got that that very very positive side to it and these are people i think that i'll you know continue to be friends with and continue to work with even you know now that i'm retired because i'm still sort of active in in doing the sort of research anyway i think uh, many of us have kind of stories like that you know that um thrust into it well it's it's kind of tribal when you say it it becomes a bit tribal yeah yeah it's worrying it's worrying in that sense because you've got these massive divisions now in society which are not going to heal easily hmm. professor norman fenton thank you for coming on our radio station all the best to you and we'll keep an eye out on your Substack and other things we'll put up the links with this uh, replay that will be coming up after the the play out so we appreciate your time and um and keep up the great work <laughs> Yeah, thanks very much. Bye. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.